Good morning. All right, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go really fast. <coughs> I'm going to try and actually get to the information, see what happens. <coughs> Internal evidence session three, the certainty of the words of truth, subtitled, The Right Hard Attitude to Guide Us Through the Deliberations of Canonicity. As one studies the Word of God in church history side by side, two great truths about the movement of the Spirit of God upon the people of God become self-evident. <coughs> Number one, apostasy will always begin with misapprehensions concerning the true nature of faith. Number two, revival always begins with repentance born of a correction of these misapprehensions and increased understanding of how the Spirit of God responds to rightly dividing and rightly applying the Word of God. <clears throat> Examples are rife. We will only give one uh, or two for the Word of God and history, respectively. After Judah's return from Babylonian captivity, Old Testament prophets laid the groundwork for the spiritual revivals which took place among God's people under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah and pointing out the difference between genuine faith in God and the superstition of heathen idolatry. In the New Testament, John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lamb of God in large part by denouncing the arrogance and vanity and hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Sadducees and possibly even indirectly the Essenes <clears throat> and demonstrating the difference in their attitudes from true godly repentant faith. In church history, by exposing the false doctrines of Gnostics attempting to counterfeit biblical Christianity by merging it with mysticism and aestheticism. The early generations of Christians, sometimes called church fathers, though I loathe the term, made, made possible the spread of genuine Christianity during the ecclesiastical creedal confusion of the Nicene Age. More than a thousand years later, Martin Luther, whatever you may think of him, turned the already kindled spark of the struggle against the papal stronghold of persecution against the true church into the roaring conflagration of the, of, the, of the Reformation by insisting upon a difference between justification by faith alone <clears throat> and the hellish admixture of works being propagated by the Roman Catholic Church. A horrible idea, if there ever was one. <clears throat> Today, if we would see a generation of men and women take a stand against the attacks on Scripture and a posture of naked aggression against the New Testament doctrine of preservation, if we would see our grandchildren hold and carry and read and teach and preach and love a book in which they believe they have access to every one of God's words <clears throat> in the order that he wants them to have them in their language, then we must follow this providential pattern of God which is being declared among us this week, established for us in the Word of God and consistently carried out in the history and development of the English Bible, which BTW, I maintain, that's all church history really is. It is the drama of the true church and its persecution by Satan's counterfeit church, which led to the development of a perfect English text. Call me crazy. I'm used to it. I even like it, I assure you. <clears throat> we must pick up the torch from failing hands and hold it high, not breaking faith with those who die, with all those whom papal whore satiated her bloodlust, and why? Why? Read it. Read the documents. Even read it from the whore's perspective. 
She was satiating her bloodlust on the saints because they had copies of scriptures which were antithetical to the false Bible that they were propagating, and they wanted to kill them and destroy those manuscripts before they ever got organized and before they ever became codified and before they they ever became bound and printed and sent out. It was because of the letters that they had that they refused to give up. Well, did the King James Bible come floating down from heaven? It came floating down from a sea of the blood of martyrs. That's where it came floating down from, and you can't say that about another Bible. And that demands your respect. We must follow in the footsteps of these great men of God. We must live by faith in this age of apostasy and unbelief, proclaiming to all men everywhere the difference between believing and doubting, even when doubting is so dressed up that it looks like believing. Brothers and sisters, if we could yoke up to this incredible responsibility, then there can be nothing more real to us than God and nothing more sure to us than the purity of his words. We must take God and his revelation of himself and his promise of preservation as an extension of the revelation of himself as the starting point for all of our thinking and interactions, especially with Laodicea's failing household of faith. Number one, how can we know the Bible is true? Well, let's get back to their question. We never got to finish it. Where was the word of God before 1611? You remember that one? Ha, 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 ha. Nay, but thou didst laugh. Well, if I again appeal to the word of God as my authority to answer such a question, then, as the snow in the summer and as rain in the harvest, I have two options as I understand it. Those options being... Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Or, I could do this. I could just go ahead and answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. It's the spirit of the asker that determines my answer. (coughs) Well, why are you always so sarcastic? I don't ever recall getting anything other but a sarcastic question on this subject. What's good for the goose is good for the gander turns out to be scriptural logic. (coughs) You see, the answer you get is the one you deserve. For a King James man, the question is, if they don't deserve an answer, how do you not answer them? Now, that's the question. How do you not answer a pig who wants breakfast from your pearls? <coughs> well, as the bird by wandering, as the swallow by flying, I once again apprehend two options, both taken from the example of Christ. I can A, open not my mouth. I don't always have to answer every jackass that brays. 
<coughs> By the way, in the context of that sentence, a jackass is an animal. <laughs> Number two, I can answer a dishonest question with another question. And when you know that the motivation behind a question is religious hypocrisy, then you are able to say things back like, I'll answer your question when you answer this one. The baptism of John. Was it of God or was it of man? Well, neither then do I tell thee by what authority I do these things. You know what that is? That's a biblical response to a, to, to a good question asked dishonestly. But let's go with option B because it'll be more fun. <clears throat> Our question back. How do you answer the dishonest question? Where was the word of God before 1611? You follow the example of Christ by not answering or if you feel so disposed, answering with demanding they answer a question first. Don't knowingly answer a loaded question. At least load up yourself. So when you both fire, one or both of you die, <laughs> okay? Here's how you respond to the question. First of all, before we say, imagine the hypocrisy of demanding the location of a perfect Bible before 1611 when they don't believe there has ever been a perfect Bible, that there is one today or that there ever will be because of their demonic perspective of the doctrine of preservation. There's only one way to drive such a creature off who actually begins, not from the point of departure of faith, but before they even get to the text, they have already determined, yea, hath God said. There's only one way to drive off such a creature, again, borrowed from Christ's own example. It is written, it is written, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Christ began his argument back with the word of God itself and faith in it. Somebody asked me yesterday afternoon, right after the message, would you really debate anybody on this subject? I didn't say I would beat anybody. I said I would debate anybody. Now maybe all I'll do is bleed on their shirt, give them a dry cleaning bill from the fight. But I'm willing to get bloodied. I'm willing to go down into the valley when no one else is apparently while somebody is mocking some giant intellectual giant is mocking the preservation of the word of God win or lose is there not a cause is there not a cause the only thing that's going to sink in to their intellectual heads is the stone of the word of God what I said was I'll debate anybody if the argument is internal Evidence. Now, why would I fight somebody else's fighting style? Why would I play by their rules? Or we're going to get in a fight 3 o'clock in the playground after school. Now, here's the deal. You have to tie half your brain behind your back. No, I'm not going to tie half my brain behind my back if we're going to have an intellectual war. I'm not doing it. I'm going to fight my fighting style. You fight yours to see what happens. My fighting style is in. Eternal evidence, baby, and I'm not leaving my position of faith 
to accommodate what will make the struggle easier for you. Now on that basis, yes, anywhere, anytime. Is that brave? No. Because once we're gonna, as we're gonna see this morning, if you stick to your point of departure, and this is what's so important, you can't lose. I'm not brave. I'm calculating. I liked a rigged game just as much as they do. So, where is the pure, complete word of God today? Oh, well, it's in Nestle Allen's text. Really, really. Which noventum, or novum testamentum gracae? See, where was the word of God before 1611? What's your answer back? Where is the word of God today? Well, I, we, we cannot say. Neither do I tell thee by what authority I do these things. You're not going to answer my questions. I'm not going to answer yours. Why would, I, why would I agree to those rules? Why would I do that? By the way, last time I, I counted, there were 27 editions of Nestle Allen's text. The last time I checked, that's quite a bit more of a refining process than seven, by my count. Well, the TR advocates. Well, it's in the TR. Really? It's in the TR? What do they always say to us? Well, which King James Bible? That's what they want you to say. 1611? 1769? Well, Erasmus had five editions of the TR. Colonnaeus, 1534. Stephanus had four editions of the TR. Beza had nine. The Elzevir brothers had four. There was the Oxford of 1825. There was the Scholz of 1841 and the Scribner of uh, 1894. Which one are you talking about? My question to you is, which TR? Well, mm, Scribner. Oh, Scrivener, 1894. Oh, it took 1611 years to get the word of God. Ha, 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 ha. Well, that beats 1894 all the pieces, doesn't it? Ha, 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 ha. Oh, well, you're sarcastic. How dare you laugh at other Christians? I don't think that's very... What? Have you lost your ever-loving... The Elzevir brothers and on came after the King James Bible. Can you not count? And you were mocking, you were mocking the 1611 years it took to produce the King James Bible? Rather hypocritical, don't you think? And if they could choose one, now listen, if they could choose one, they still have options, don't they? Of course they do. That's why they use lexicons when they study. Lexicons, if you ever open up a lexicon and you look at a word in a verse so you can study it, you know, that biblical method of interpretation where you divine truth by comparing scripture with ancient languages. I mean, that's right out of 1 Corinthians 2, right? What you're going to find in a lexicon is that you get anywhere from 5 to 13 possibility English equivalent words for each word. So even if you had one text, you're still choosing between 5 to 13 different options for each word. 
And who makes that choice once you open up that lexicon? Who makes that choice? Come on now. Who makes the choice? You do. Ye shall be as gods. In OBTW, there's more than one lexicon. So again, not to be argumentative, you understand. But which lexicon? Well, I believe it's a mixture. Oh, it's a mixture. It's a mixture of different TRs. Well, yes. Well, I believe it's a mixture of some TR and, and some critical text. Oh, really? Yeah, and we're going to go ahead and call that the majority text because we like the sound of that, even though the majority text historically belongs to the TR. By the way, just like we did with the word Catholic and just like we did with the word Vulgate. Whenever we like a term, we'll steal it and use it for us. Well, which mixture for each text? What do you mean, which mixture? Which mixture? What is the divine authority for choosing which mixture of TR and critical text? What do you mean, there is no authority? Oh, yes, there is. It's you when you make the choice. And once you decide that, what is your final authority for the five to, thir for the five to 13 definitions in your capriciously designated lexicon? I suppose I could ask it this way. It seems to be how they like to phrase their questions. Which lexicon came floating down from heaven? Or, which TR was good enough for Peter, if it's good enough for you? Listen, if they're going to pull that stuff with you, then you shove it right back down their throat every time they open their mouth. With this many possible combinations, let's just say 50 possible combinations. Constantine, if you gave 50 different Christians that approach to divining an interpretation of Scripture, you would have 50 different versions, radically different versions, every time you did it. Well, why are there more than 200 English Bibles if this is the most accurate way to do it? because it obviously isn't the most accurate way to do it, or you wouldn't have a completely different version every time you make a new version. The difference, my fellows and my friends, the difference is that when both groups are asked the same question, where was the word of God before 1611? I can say, and this is my whole point of coming here this week, this, I can say, <clears throat> somewhere, and they can't. Even if I can't say where at any given time in history, even if I'm not as smart as Alan Shelby, even if I'm wrong, I don't have to be satirical or deceitful when I tell people that the word of God exists today and always has and that by faith I believe the Bible is perfect. You see, that's an unassailable position. That's why I can debate from that point of departure because you can't prove that I don't believe that by faith. That's my position anyway. Yes, I'll argue that with, any, any, with anybody. You find the Bible faculty member 
who's going to get me to concede that I'm wrong when I say I don't accept that the Bible is the word of God by faith. It's an unassailable position, so don't leave that position and be drawn out of faith into critical thinking where you will get mauled. These are smart people. These are mean people. They're meaner than I am. They're smarter than I am. They're more well-read than I am, and they're specialists in this subject because they weren't called to preach. A preacher has to preach the whole counsel of God. I have to worry about every doctrine and every truth. These wonks, they sit in an office on a, in, 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 on a campus, and they study one thing their whole lives. They get good at it after about two decades, and they think they're brilliant. Anybody who studied one thing their entire life would be brilliant in that subject if they had the IQ of an onion. They don't have to bury people and marry people and counsel people and talk people off ledges quite literally. They don't have to visit people in the hospital. They don't have to go on missions trips. They don't have to care for other people's sick kids like you care for your own. They don't do any of that. You know what they do? They pretend to know Greek, and they do it all day. I've got other things to do. So no, sir, I won't meet you in your field of expertise. You will meet me in mine. My field of expertise is I believe God when he said he will keep every word. I'm not leaving that position, and you can't prove I don't believe that. Another thing that I can say that they can't is I have a final authority. They can never say that. I'm not choosing which words I'm believing. If you don't believe in a perfect Bible, you can't say this and you know it. You know it. Quit lying and admit it. You know it's true. You get up in front of your churches and you talk about how you believe in the inspired word of God. You're a liar. You're a liar. You don't believe in the inspired word of God if you don't believe what I'm saying. You don't believe there's an inspired Bible. You don't believe in the pure words of God. You're a charlatan. If God promised access to every word in a book somewhere, if he did that, do you not suppose that he would reveal which book he did that to, to the people who actually believed that promise? Who else in the world is only but King James only? Wonder why that is. Wonder why that is. No NIV onlyist walking around out there. You want to know why? They don't believe that book is perfect, and I do. That's why I'm only. And that's why you're a nothing, nothing, you're nothing but a nothing. So let's just say that the logic of unbelief advocate can't answer where each preserved word of God exists today and the logic of faith advocate can't answer where they existed before 1611 or 1769 are in Cambridge or in Oxford. It doesn't change the fact that critical text, TR, and quote-unquote majority text advocates don't believe any Bible is the uniquely canonized revelation of God's promise to preserve his words and therefore they reserve the right in their deluded pagan minds to change it and correct it anytime they want to, whereas the King James advocate believes in a book that has the perfect words of God and a perfect order of syntax that cannot be changed. Do you see, dear brothers and sisters, what I'm saying is this. Please listen. 
If they can't answer their hard questions and we can't answer our hard questions, then who is still in the better position? We are. Don't get drawn away from your fixed and sure position in order to defend that position. Debate from internal evidence. Don't accommodate their fighting style. But you won't convince them. No, I won't convince them. Neither will I lose. Because I can't lose from my safe point of departure. Ronald Reagan said, I don't debate people to change their minds. I debate people to let the people who already agree with me know they're not alone and that their arguments are sound. Build your defense of the rock on the rock. All other ground, brothers and sisters, is sinking sand. And you will be fighting to survive and not to win and you will have your tush handed to you on a silver platter. Now, if you were to take all of this and boil it down to one idea, to encapsulate it into a solitary verity, it would be this. Romans 3, 4. The reason we have different versions with different words conveying different doctrines and different attitudes about God and man is this. Someone is lying. You either think it's God or you think it's man. <clears throat> the reasoning behind what English Bible you choose will either be based on humanism motivated by pragmatism founded upon textual criticism or it will be based on providence motivated by a love for the individual words of God founded upon a faith-based view of preservation. Where was the word of God before 1611? Do you really want to know? See, because at the end of the day, we can actually answer that question and they can't. <clears throat> And the answer is actually quite easy. It goes like this. Old Latin, the real Vulgate, second century, the Peshetto, the Syriac, second century, Coptic, Boharic, Ethiopian, Armenian, Slavic, Gothic, French, four different versions. By the way, about the time of the Ethiopian in the, in, in the seventh century, there was a guy named the Venerable Bede who started trying to translate from Latin to primitive Saxon. He didn't get all the way done. There was a guy named Aldhelm. He tried to do the same thing with the book of Psalms. We have record of it today. What was God doing there? Developing a very specific line within a line. We'll get back to that maybe if we have time. I doubt that I will. I shouldn't even have said that. <laughs> During the development of the, of, the, of the word of God in French at that time, you had the Lindisfarne Gospels that was inserted between the lines of the Latin text. You also had the Wessex Gospels. After that, in, in about 1471, God transferred it, picked up his inspiration in one language group, placed it in another language group, and now it's in Italian. 1471, during this time, there was a guy named John Wycliffe. What did he have? He had the wrong line. He had the right heart. You can have the wrong line in the right heart. You can have the right line in the wrong heart. You need the right line, and you need the right heart. Spanish, German, Two versions, Nuremberg 1447, Luther 1531. During this same time, William Tyndale. 
began trying to make a copy, a translation of the Word of God into English using Masoretic Erasmus and Latin. About this time was the printing press. Miles Coverdale came along with the great Bible to complete the work. It was the first completed English Bible. Then it went from Flemish to Danish to Bohemian, 1539. And about 1539, the Geneva Bible was made. It was a work of Tyndale and Coverdale with some other manuscripts. They divided up this Bible into verses and they gave a critical apparatus and they made it very, very easy to carry around BTW. Then Polish, 1390, Slovenian, 1581, Slovenian being basically primitive Russian. And then right then, at that time, 1568, you have the Bishop's Bible, and then in 1611, the King James Bible. There. That's where the Word of God was before 1611. You happy? What point of yours did that prove? Nothing. It was a view of God providentially working from language to language instead of manuscripts to manuscripts. Language to language is how the Bible said he would do it. He never said he would do it from manuscript to manuscript. So you give the answer that they think that you can't answer, and when you finally do, they look at you. And you know what their answer to that is? It's, oh, very intellectual, you understand. And what's interesting about that is if you follow this line, you follow the line of the true church, you follow the line of the persecuted church, whoever had this line at that time in that language in those countries were being persecuted and hunted down by another church that had another line. You follow one line of Bibles, you take a King James Bible, you reverse engineer it through history, and what you find is the struggle of the true church in church history. You take the other line of Bibles, and you find the line of Bibles of a strange woman persecuting a virtuous woman who is drunk with the blood of saints. That's the Bible that she has. The authorized King James Bible cannot be improved upon. Every word of it is true. Those who see errors in this book do so because they are predisposed to see them. They expect to see them. They actually want to see them because given their theological perspectives, their investment into their education, their perceived increased odds of becoming a pastor or a teacher or achieving their desired station of peer identification, their paycheck and their level of humility which, be, which would be required to profess a textus critica recantum, if you will, all of which is simply to say they have created their very own need to see them. You cannot approach this book without clean hands, a pure heart, and a believing mind. And if you approach the Bible without those three things, this book will be a closed book to you. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 13, Hold fast to the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. You've never heard anybody speak in Koine. How can you hold fast to that? You have heard him speak in English. What form of sound words did you receive? Billy Graham Museum. First turn to your left. A reproduction model of the little cabin that he lived in where mama used to, used to tell him Bible stories. And he got saved by, at mama's lap. Oh, Billy Graham got saved at mama's lap. And they want to show you a huge display of the verse that old mama used back in the woods before, you know, Jed was, you know, shooting at some raccoons and up through the ground come a bubbling crew. 
And, and here's the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You, you four flesh and liar. Do you think that Billy Graham's mama, when she opened up John 3.16, the verse that he got saved by, was for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son? No, no. The verse that Billy Graham's mother read to him that caused him to be saved was for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, I'm sorry to say that Billy Graham dumped the book. Why, when he was, what, skinny dipping with the presidents and all. I'm sorry for that. I really am. But you don't like Billy Graham? Me. Well, what's your point? My point is, I didn't ask you the sound words that you think you have now. What were the form of sound words that you received as a child in your language? What were those words? Well, Paul told Timothy to hang on to that. I would suggest you do the same. When I approach this book, I approach it with the belief that the AV is the exact form and order of sound words that God has preserved for me. And that those specific words in that specific order are exactly to what God would have me and all English-speaking peoples to hold fast. No other advocates of any other Bibles possess such a conviction or even profess to. Who but a King James-onlyist thinks they can actually read these words and believe them and claim them practically in their lives today. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Do you believe you can do that? Did God give you a commandment and then leave you with an inability to fulfill that commandment? That's exactly what you think, friend, if you're not a King James man. Why don't you just be honest about it? Why do you have to lie like a rug about it? If that's your position, be bold and say, we don't have access to the words of God today. I can't live by the commandment that I was given to live by every word of Matthew 4, 4, to live by every word of God. Job 23, 12. Neither have I gone back from the commandments of thy lips. I have esteemed thy words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Only a King James man can say that, and you know it. You know it. 1 Kings 8.56, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel according to all that he hath promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of, Je of, uh, of Josiah, king of Judah, came this word from the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak unto all the cities of Judah, which came to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command thee to speak unto them, diminish not a word. You'll never be able to open up a Bible in front of a congregation and read all the words and know that you didn't diminish one word from what God spake. You'll never have that confidence. You'll never have that privilege. You'll never have that blessing. You'll never have that honor. And you will never have the rewards of so doing. 
When I approach the King James Bible as a disciple or a discipler, as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a teacher, as a pastor, I believe that God's instructions to Jeremiah to diminish not a word of his words is just as much possible and therefore just as much applicable to me today as it was to Jeremiah in roughly 580 B.C. The purity of God's words is important to God and it should be important to you as should the place of preeminence he hath given his individual words over thoughts, ideas, doctrines, messages, fundamental standards, education, men, churches, schools, reputations, and ancient pieces of paper for which God has chosen extinction as well as the humanistic, delusional, and superstitious conjectures concerning the intents of original authors and comprehensions of their original audiences for which you have no authority to appeal to whatsoever to corroborate or substantiate your quote-unquote holy hunches. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. You'll never be able to say that, and you know it if you're not a King James man. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. If you're not a King James man, you, don't, you, don't, you not only don't believe that, you think it's a lie. Why don't you just be honest? Why can't we get all of these holy men with godly reputations and standards who make their daughters wear culottes with two pairs of tube socks and high tops in July to tell the truth? How could intellectual honesty not force one to concede that when the Lord made that statement, he was not promising to preserve the original manuscripts for man's use down through the ages. He was making known his slow but sure perfecting process to produce the written word of God from generation to generation through faithful chosen ministers, and I believe he kept that promise. Of course, Jesus made no specific mention of the King James Bible. Neither did he of the TR or the critical text. Neither did he specifically name the books of the New Testament, or for that matter, if there would even be a literarily designated New Testament at all. But when the saint of God who approaches the word of God with clean hands and a pure heart and a believing mind compares scripture with scripture, we soon discover that the preservation of every one of his words from generation to generation in language groups to and through those groups is indeed the doctrine of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And what but this faith-based view of preservation makes the study of the New Testament meaningful and, and profitable salvaging the would-be Bible student from naturalistic New Testament criticism founded upon wrong assumptions, producing the wrong fruit and the wrong results, which are impure and earthly and not after Christ and not by faith, without which it is impossible to please God. At Bob Jones University, I had to stand up as a freshman in college who entered as a Bible major every day, and every day in chapel before the message, we had to say, the Bob Jones Creed. I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, the creation of man by the direct act of God, the incarnation and virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his identification as the Son of God, his vicarious atonement for the sins of mankind by the shedding of his blood on the cross, the resurrection of his body from the tomb, his power to save men from sin, the new birth of the regeneration by the Holy Spirit and the gift of eternal life by the grace of God. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, tis now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, amen. Everybody sit down. Yes, sir. <laughs> the bastion of orthodoxy, the fortress of the faith. And just like a school I once knew in Alexandria, 
the world's most unusual university. And they lied in the first line of that creed. They no more believe in the inspiration of the Bible or any Bible than the man on the stinking moon. And as soon as you leave that chapel and go into that class, they do everything they can to get those students to not believe the very creed they make them repeat every day. You know what that is? It's satanic. My point is this. I learned early on that what some people say they believe, when some people say they believe in the inspiration of the Bible, they don't mean inspiration in the sense that the Bibles use it and they aren't referring to any one Bible that currently exists or has ever existed. I learned that there was such an animal as a man who considered himself to be an authority on God's word who would thunder from one side of his, his mouth his unshakable confidence and the plenary verbally inspired word of God from which he preached boasting of his high view of scripture only to correct this perfectly inspired Bible no fewer than 10 times per sermon. So when they say they believe the Bible is true and you say you believe the Bible is true, as crazy as this may sound, brothers and sisters, we don't mean nearly the same thing as Bible or true. What's the difference? They're lying and we're not. That's the difference. A, let's be clear When an actual Bible believer says the Bible is true, he means four things that other people who say the Bible is true don't necessarily always mean. Number one, the Bible is the revelation of God himself. If I really believe that, then I could say with total confidence that the same view that I have of God, I have of the King James Bible, and I do not believe that could be said of any other book or any other version of the Bible. I believe God is perfect and without error. I believe the King James Bible is perfect and without error. I believe that God is a spirit, and I believe that the King James Bible is the inspired sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If I don't think it's perfect, then I am forced to conclude that what I really believe about the Bible is that it contains the word of God, but it is not the very words of God, and that is incontrafutable logic, ladies and gentlemen. I don't just believe it is the sole source of specific information about God. I don't just mean that it is where I derive my fundamentals or my doctrines or where I go for my devotions or where I derive my understanding of God, but it is where I go to commune with God himself based on his individual words found only in its pages. Secondly, I believe the Bible is eternally established. Nobody but a King James man believes that about the thing that they call the Bible. Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Jesus Christ came down from heaven to deliver his eternal word unto men. When he did, John said this, I have given them thy word, Christ said, and the word hath hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. You're going to be hated if you claim that you have been given the words that have been eternally settled in heaven. You will be mocked, you will be vilified, you will be hated, and you will be the one to be made to sound unspiritual. They get to mock the word of God and keep their godly reputations, and I begrudge them that, friends. I begrudge them their holy reputations. I do. And if I have to sacrifice, even though I don't want to, I've just decided that if I have to sacrifice being thought of as nice and friendly, in order to unmask their satanic nonsense, then that's just a price I will pay happily, happily 
happily. Hence, although I readily concede that the scriptures were <coughs> written in definite historical places at specific times, spoken by the mouth of mortal and therefore fallible men, and recorded via the pen of human amanuensis, they are not merely the product of those circumstances and conditions, but rather transcend them, being the culmination of the eternal plan of God and an act of miraculous providence wrought through the promise of preservation which divinely guarantees its purity and perfection. God is eternal, inhabiting points of time, past, present, and future. Thus, when God designed eternal holy writ by the very breath of the person of the Godhead known as the Word, who was with God and who was God, he had the whole sweep of this parenthesis in eternity we call time in view. Therefore, the scripture, which is forever settled in heaven, is as well perpetually relevant and able to be transmitted into whatever language, in whatever culture, at whatever time, and under whatever human conditions he sees fit, with messages that cannot be outgrown, and words that can live on and abide for each generation and forever. And I accept that by faith, and you can't prove that I don't accept that by faith, and you can't prove that the Bible gives me the right to accept that by faith. You want to have a debate? Fine. But you can't disprove those things. I may not win, but I won't lose. We'll both be bloody, and I'll be smiling. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass wherewith uh, 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 the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Through Scripture, the word of God speaks to every man in this age, and each age can have access to every word of God that he wants them to have at that time. That's the argument. It isn't, can you go from one language to another and get an exact translation? They don't mean that. They mean, can you go from one manuscript to another and get an exact translation going from language to language? That's never the question. The question of preservation is, can God go from one language group to another language group and get every word in that language group that he wants that language group to have? Don't let them dictate the terms of the argument, especially when they're not biblical terms. For whatsoever things were written aforetime, listen now, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. How does that make sense? What was written aforetime was an original manuscript. How can we today have the patience of scriptures? If scripture what was written before time, because we don't have access to what was written aforetime. We have copies of it, and then we have translations of it, and then God says, you know what you have if you have that? You have the same thing that you keep calling uh, exclusive to the original autographs. You have scripture. Why would God perfectly inspire words that he would not perfectly preserve? C, we mean that the Bible is infallibly inspired. When I say the Bible bound in this very leather on these very pages, which I hold in my hand before you, is the inspired word of God, I am saying so because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of God persuades us to adopt the same view of Scripture that Jesus believed and taught during his earthly ministry. Jesus understood the entire compilation of the Old Testament writings to be considered together as Scripture. Luke 24, 44, And he said unto them, These are the words which I speak unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Jesus divided the Old Testament into three sections, law, prophets, and, and Psalms. He believed they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark chapter 12 and verse 37. 
He believed not one of them could be denied, John 10, 35. He believed not one marking or particle of them could perish, Matthew 5, 18. He believed that everything written in them was divinely authoritative, Matthew 4, 4. He believed that even the New Testament would be infallibly inspired, according to how he inspired the Gospels and the Apostles. The Gospels claimed to be inspired by John. Paul claimed to be inspired by Paul himself and by Peter, 2 Peter 3, 15, 1 Corinthians 14. John chapter 16, verse 12 through 13. Of these inspired Old Testament scriptures, we know that people had not just copies, but translations of them, and, had, and, and they had not lost their inspiration. Now, of course, for reasons aforementioned in this series, we know and believe that inspiration can expire. That would be impossible. 2 Timothy three thirteen through 17, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, all scripture, all scripture, all scripture, and out of 53 times scripture is mentioned in Bible, not one time does the Bible refer to an original autograph. It refers to translations, and it refers to copies, and it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, throughly furnished unto all good works. Yes, I said throughly. And for good measure, in the final chapter of the book of Revelation, it asserts that inspiration is true and exists in the strongest possible terms. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of this prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from those things which are written in this book. And if you think that means that people who change this book have lost their salvation, you, sir, need a class on how to rightly divide the word of truth. Let's go. Fourth point, the Bible has providentially and perfectly been preserved. Nobody but a King James man believes that. Because the scriptures are God's revelation of himself, established in the heavens from everlasting, established by the one who inhabits eternity, thus eternally relevant and infallibly inspired, they have been guarded, preserved in a way that is miraculous, though not mystical, publicly, though not secretly. The logic of faith, therefore, leads us to this conclusion, being confirmed by the promise of God himself in the word of God itself. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. Only a King James man believes that, ladies and gentlemen. Luke chapter 21 and verse 33, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. I believe that by faith. I have the scriptural evidence to believe that. You can't prove I don't have the scriptural evidence, and you can't prove I don't have the faith. And that's my point of departure, and I'm not leaving it. So we argue from internal evidence, which is the Bible's testimony of itself, which brings us to the importance of exclusivity. What makes the Bible so different from all other holy books or any type of book for that matter? Its own testimony in nature. Now at this point, I'll resist the urge to look at Revelation chapter 19.10 for fear of stepping through the looking glass never to return. But even aside from that, even aside from Revelation 19.10, the Bible is unique in the testimony of its own literary structure and narrative. One has only but to open and read the first three chapters of the book to realize that this book is not a religious book. Get that out of your mind. This book is not a philosophical book. Get that out of your mind. This book is not a Christian book. Get that out of your mind. 
This book sometimes even isn't even a Jewish book. Well, the Bible's a Jewish book from cover to cover. Well, the oracles, yes, written by Jewish men. Even Luke, if you don't believe that, I'll prove it to you afterwards. They're all Jewish. But the nature of it's not Jewish in Genesis 1 through 12. Kind of hard to have a Jewish nature in Genesis 1 through 12. What with before Abram and all, don't you think? It most certainly is not a Western book. It most certainly is not a Baptist book, praise God. No, the testimony of the Bible about the Bible is that it is indeed a history book. Written in the style and prose primarily called historical narrative, purporting to give accurate details of God working through and on selected people and events through the early parts of the history of civilization. Now again, the Bible is not a scientific textbook, but every one of its scientific claims are true. And when you see the Bible primarily as a history textbook, you can see the harmonious relationship it has with science. Allow me to give you just a few examples because we could be here all morning with this thing and I'm running out of time, which is why I'm talking so fast, like a micro, a micro machines commercial. Okay, here we go. When you see the Bible as an accurate historical text, you understand that man hasn't been around that long. Certainly no longer than 7,000 years. Certainly no longer than 6,000 years. And by operating from the point of departure of faith, science becomes a verification of all the claims of the Bible. So science proves man hasn't been around that long. Science proves a worldwide flood. A worldwide flood. Oh, worldwide, worldwide. You know, world to them. They didn't even know how big the world was. And, you know, so silly, silly. Silly, silly Moses. And then they get up there on top of a mountain on the other side of the world. And what do they find up there? What do they find up there? Oh, nothing. Just fossils of sea creatures at the bottom of oceans on the other side of the planet. Well, how'd that get there? Oh, silly, silly Moses. Science is a verification of all the claims of the Bible. Men who are seeking to write religious books or compendiums of mythology or lore would not sit down and write reams of genealogy. Why would they bother? Knowing it would bore the reader to tears. You want to know the truth? It's not important to us who beget who over the course of a thousand years, but it's important to God. And because he couldn't give a rip about your church growth and circles our rows, our parallelograms, our your entertainment, he gives you the names anyway. Doesn't make for a good sermon? He gives you the names anyway. Doesn't help you Monday through Friday? He gives you the names anyway. Doesn't help me meet people where they're at? He gives you the names anyway. Doesn't help your church if it's your grandfather's church or your grandson's church? He gives you the names anyway. Doesn't help your offerings? He gives you the names anyway. He gives you the names anyway. He gives you the names anyway. You want to know why? Because God doesn't give a rip what you care about. He wants you to care about what he cares about. So he gives you the names anyway. And the names turn out to be actual people and actual history. This is the book of the generation of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. Adam and Eve had a child. That kid murders his brother. So you know what God does with him? He just moves him out of the picture. What's he doing? He's establishing exclusivity as a need for perfecting a family line through a process to bring the promise of the pure seed to fruition on earth. That's what he's doing. And so he starts off. Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, stop. Ten from Adam. God says, we're going to learn about this guy. 
But what about the other names? I move them out of the way. I get to talk about the names I want to. Shut up and listen. That's what God says. There's a name you need to know. We're going to talk about this cat for a while. And God gives you his whole lineage. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why? You know why he found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Because he was what? He was pure in his generations. There's a seed that God's going to bring and stay pure right through the family lines of history until it manifests itself over a long period of time and the seed is the word of God. Pure seed's a big deal with God. Now why do you need to know that? Because the whole world is against what this book says about Noah. I mean, how did he get all those animals on that boat? They don't even think about what they're saying. All they know is that they have to get rid of the book. They don't have a scientific reason to question what's there. God has a man build a boat. He drowned everyone else but, uh, but eight on the whole planet. And guess what? History can support that scientifically. Through genealogies, through geology, through races, through cultures, through archaeology, through zoology, you can prove that. No Bible, no Christians, no worldview ever. And yet every tribe has a story of a worldwide flood and an original man. Now why is that? Why is that? Why is that? Mm-mm. So this man steps off the boat. He has three sons, and for reasons we won't go into, God was not overly impressed with one of them and not too impressed with the other. So what does he do? He tells Ham to go south. He tells Japheth to go north, and he stops telling their stories. Well, why? Because he doesn't care about them? No, no, just hang on. Because he cares about them immensely. But the way that God saves everyone is through exclusivity until perfection so everyone can get saved. You don't have salvation without exclusivity. And so what does God do? Moves Ham and Japheth out of the way. He doesn't tell their story. He wants to tell somebody else's story. Who? Shem, Aphrodex, Selah, Eber, Peleg, Ryu, Sarig, Nahor, Terah, Abram. Stop. I want you to learn about this guy, God says. You need to know about him. Well, why does he matter? Why does he matter and not all the others? I don't think that's fair. Because God says, I will bless him that blesses him and curse him that curses him. And I want all the nations to be blessed. Don't you get it, man? Don't you get it that the one thing that the world claims that they want is the one thing that God wants for the world? All the nations of the earth to be blessed and live in unity? Will you just trust God that his plan is better than your Babel system, than freaking cats and dogs living together? Will you? That Sodom and Gomorrah is not the answer? That you can't have peace without the Prince of Peace? Will you just believe that God loves everyone enough to die for him more than you? 
He's got a plan to save the world. He's got a plan of racial harmony. He's got a plan that even when all the smoke clears and all the dust is settled and everything has been gone and everything has been removed, the bride of Christ that is one in Christ still somehow mysteriously carries with it its racial and national distinctions because it's every kindred and every tribe and every tongue and every nation standing around together in harmony, singing, we are the world, we are the people, and Jesus is king. You're gonna get your way, but you gotta go with God, man. You gotta go with God. You gotta go with his book because you won't have peace without the Prince of Peace. The facts support that. History supports that. Science supports that. You mess with the Jew, you have a bad day. And combined... The Bible and history and science present a verification of the whole supporting that Abraham and his seed are special people. Not on the basis of merit. Quite the contrary. You read the Old Testament, it's like a Jerry Springer episode. It's only because they represent the line that connects both Adams, the ruler of the throne of David for the second advent, the theme of the Bible, God will tell you the names he wants you to know, but if you don't look at the Bible as a word-for-word, reliable, literal history, then you lose a lot more than you think. Truth which may even cause you to end up losing momentum in your church. Truth that you would have to apologize for if it got out that you believed. Truth that might even make you think that ministry is covering up and apologizing for the actual God of the Bible revealed in his word. 1,700 years of human history and a few lists of names, but those names tell you what in history matters. God and what doesn't. Names matter and names are word. Individual names matter because they are the individual words of God. If you get rid of the concept of individual words instead of ideas, you lose your faith in God's ability to preserve a specific seed called the word of God on earth, whether that be the word of God or whether that be the word of God. The word of God makes no distinction between the word of God and the word of God, and I say that on the authority of the word of God and the word of God. (laughs) Abraham has a son. What's his name? Little Itzhak. Why is that important? And Itzhak shall thy seed be called. God takes one kid, he moves him aside, he concentrates on the other kid. Then Jacob, not the other. Why? Because God wants you to know something. That seed matters. He also wants you to know something else. The first birth is rejected. It's the second birth that's accepted. So he lets one go kick around in the desert for a while. He'll go save him later. Until then, he's going to be a little bit out of control. Sorry, that's just how it is. What does he do? He sells his birthright. God says, I'm done telling your story. So God gives you more names. Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Hezron, Aminadab. Aminadab? That's a weird name. Sounds like a Vulcan. You need to know that name. Why? Because he has a kid named Ram. Ram has a kid named Nashon. Nashon has a kid named Salmon. Salmon has a kid named Boaz. Boaz has a kid named Obed. Obed has a kid named Jesse. Jesse has a kid named David. Oh, better stop. Better stop where God stops. You better stop where God stops, friend.
It's a name you need to know. Why? Oh, you know. Line of the tribe of Judah. You know, little stuff like that. Going to come from David. David's, David's going to take over a city. You know, city of David. Going to sit on a throne. A throne of David. It's going to have some keys. You know, the key of David. It's going to have a son. It's going to have a weird title. The name's going to be the son of David. He's going to be shown mercies that are an exception to the rule of law. And those mercies are called the sure mercies of David. You know, just words. Whatever. He sets up a kingdom called the kingdom of David. <laughs> Turns out to be the theme of the Bible, in case you're wondering. You know, little, little, little stuff like that. Wouldn't it be weird to have your Bible translated by a bunch of people who don't even believe that there ever was a guy named David that existed on this planet? Would you trust a Bible like that? Would you trust a Bible like that? You are a fool. With real people, real events, real trials, real agony, historically, doctrinally, devotionally, prophetically connecting to the rest of the Bible and today and the future and the cosmos and the planet and the church and Israel and you and your wife and your kids and the lost and your friends and the judgment seat of Christ in eternity. Well, those names are boring. Well, you are a moron. You better get excited about those names. God used those names to save your little powdered pink patootie. You better not let one of those names fall to the ground. Have you? David set up a city, a city with kings, Judean kings, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham. You know those names? Those names are important, man. Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Jeconiah, on into captivity, coming out of captivity, Salathiel, Zerubbabel, Jehoiakim, Azor, Zadok, Jehoiakim, Abihud, Eliad, Eliezer, Mathan, Jacob, Joseph, stop. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the second Adam. Perfectly preserved through flawed men. Is anything too hard for God? Hmm. For what purpose? For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever. Hey, Whitey, come on down. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. Hey, Asians, come on down. Hey, Ham, come on up. Hey, world, you're all saved. You're all one in Christ through the exclusivity of the preservation of the seed, the word of God sown on earth. And we get to the end of time. And what we have is a book with names. Most of those names never mattered much to you, but they matter to God. And you will be judged out of a record of names written in a book of the dead. And at the white throne judgment, if you're unsaved, God will judge you according to names in a book. And those names that don't appear in a book, you know what God's going to do for eternity? He's going to move them out of the picture. And he's going to keep telling his narrative. His Story. History. Real people, real names, real history from individual words are a big, stinking, honking, hairy deal to God and I don't care if they aren't a big deal to some egghead with a doctorate in philosophy who has spoiled himself and seeks to spoil you. It's a history textbook that can be scientifically verified and God will show you the names you need to know and he will tell you the names you need to ignore. Like scientists and professors and scribes and professors, so help me. And religious leaders and any pastor and any church with any Bible that follows those names and not the names of these words in this book, you better watch out. It's a book of names, it's a book of laws, it's a book of works, it's a book of history, it's a book of words, it's a book of truth, it's a book of judgment, and the world hates it, the world hates all of it, all of it, all of it. And it means that time and money and energy that you spent on the education which changed your view of this book from highest to high was a waste, and you don't want to hear that, and you don't want to face the truth, but that's the truth. The world hates this book, and so do the people who translate the new Bibles, or dump it for another book. Because this history book is words of final authority, the issue to which all issues boiled down, and were it not for that, I maintain, people wouldn't hate it quite so much as they do. Listen, the world and religious leaders alike will always team up <clears throat> and attack the authority and power of Jesus Christ because it exposes the pride and vanity of man and declares that final authority rests on him and his words. That is what the real battle is all about, brothers and sisters, final authority. If the Bible claimed to be a book of lore or mythology, a work of religious fiction, college professors, secular and Christian, and politicians and pastors and judges and news reporters and columnists and celebrities and Christian authors would leave it alone because it would give them precisely what they're looking for. It would give them the ability to ignore or correct or omit the parts that deal with their own wickedness. It would give them the ability to believe in their truth. But because the Bible has so many negative things to say about man and yet also claims to be a record of accurate history and inspired by the one true God, the world hates this book as much as it hated Christ, 
when he was falsely accused, wrongfully imprisoned, given an unfair trial, brutalized, tortured, stripped, whipped, plucked, nailed to a cross between two malefactors, given vinegar to drink, prolonged his agony by not breaking his legs so the process of drowning in his own fluids would be longer and more excruciating. He had a spear thrust through his side. Why? Because he claimed to be God, he claimed to be perfect, and because he spake as one having authority, that and for no other reason is all the excuse the world needs to hate you and to torture you and to get rid of you. That's how much both the religious and secular world hated him. That's too big of a threat to taxes, government. That's too big of a threat to offerings, churches, to keep around. Men are evil, and we know what motivates them to rebel against divine authority, don't we? Why wouldn't it be the root of all evil? You see, as long as there is an absolute final authority, we can no longer make a living preaching about faith in faith. We can no longer get away with having love of love or the praise of praise or the worship of worship. You know where the real money is? No, now we have to eke it out in our meager little churches. We have to eke it out, don't we? Preaching about faith in a book, love of God's words, praise of his testimonies, the worship of God and his name over which his words have been magnified, and that's no fun because this book tells you you're wicked, it tells you you're evil, it tells you you're no good, it tells you you're off-scurring, you're grass, you're a worm, you're a dumb animal, that you're a wretch, that your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now, people will let a Bible like that exist as long as that Bible gives them permission to change it, ignore it, or remove it. But when the Bible that gives you no wiggle room and then instructs you to teach the whole counsel of God says that and you can't change it, well, my fellows and friends, that can be an obstruction to lay out a sea in ecclesiastical growth paradigms, I'm here to tell you. And that hits the American pastor and the Christian psychologist right where it hit the Pharisees and the Roman rulers of Christ's day, the pocketbook. But they that will be rich, oh my, my, my. They fall into a snare, don't they? The value of the Bible as an accurate historical narrative connects it to the veracity of every one of its claims and is the real reason people are so desperate to find errors in it because if they can convince themselves they have so done, they can make the Bible mean whatever they want it to mean in any passage at any time. Genesis 1 through 3, not a real history. If that's not a real history, the Bible says it's no, they no longer can have the right to claim the new birth. If you believe not the words of Moses, how then shall ye believe my words? Resurrection is not a historical fact. Revelation 1 through 3 is not a prophetic foreview of church history. You have no right to even question other gospels and condemn them as Paul did in Galatians 1, 8 through 12. Well, what does all this have to do with the King James Bible specifically? Thank you. You just set up my conclusion. I appreciate that. John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, what? I am the way, exclusive. The truth. Truth will be found on earth to be as exclusive as Jesus was to have been found on earth. And the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Okay, is that a lie or isn't it? If it was a lie, why would any honest person give two rips about the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, the same man spoke, ba- uh, spoke both passages, didn't he? Didn't the same man who preached the Sermon on the Mount also talk about judgment and fire and punishment and sin 
and sexual deviancy. Didn't it? Didn't he? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is the liar. He is a liar and the father of it. Now is that any way to treat the ecumenical council and brethren and engage others with the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, condescending to men of lower estate while being honoring to all men? Is that any way for a godly man who is called to love God, love people, and save the world behave? You know, why would Jesus talk like that? Why would he? Because he wasn't hindered with the encumbrances of church attendances and offerings. I mean, when you go fishing and you can get coins from the fish's mouths, to be fair, you don't have to worry so much about offerings, do you? Although I bet it would improve your interest in fishing. And when you aren't concerned about numbers and you aren't concerned about money, the truth of the matter is you're freer to say things. And when you couldn't give a good Jimmy Hoot about who your ministry buddies are or what their wives think of your personality, then you don't have to worry so much about how you say it, do you? Oh, but those preacher's wives, mm, especially the one that I live with, boy, they don't like all that nasty, mean talk. They want to keep it friendly. Oh, honeykins, I think we ought to stay away from that mean, big, red-headed one. Changes what you say and how you say it. Bigger audience, less you can say. Right? 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 You see, folks, when you have to worry about all that, you're limited. And since expository preaching forces you to engage all these topics, it's just better to be topical and encouraging. I mean, for the good of the kingdom, you understand. I mean, why bother about depart from me into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels when you could be sharing the love of God to hurting people who hurt people. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Forget that again, both passages were spoken by the same man, and out of Christian charity, oops, I mean love, don't want to confuse the brethren. Oops, I mean brothers. Oops, I mean brothers and sisters. Oops, I mean individuals. Out of love for individuals. Let's just say it's a coincidence that it's easier to make a living preaching one passage than it is the other. That it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that you're compromising. Okay? Friends, here's my assertion. It's an assertion I make on a threefold promise because the testimony of the Bible about the Bible is that inspiration never expires and that God promises to preserve his words forever settled in heaven into the subsequent contexts and languages, cultures, and peoples spanning the course of human civilization and because the Bible claims to be a perfectly accurate historical narrative and a perfectly accurate compendium of second advent prophecy, these three testimonies about the Bible expose who is and who is not an actual Bible believer every time.
who but a Bible rejecter would make figurative and symbolic nearly two-thirds of Scripture dealing with the second advent? Who but a Bible rejecter would come up with a hermeneutic that would spiritualize two-thirds of the Bible intended to be taken literally? Who would do that? Under the guise of being staunch defenders of the faith, I smell a snake. Therefore, I assert, if you don't believe the King James Bible is the soul-inspired, perfect, plenary, word-for-word, exclusively realized manifestation of God's promise of preservation for at least the English-speaking peoples of the world, then you don't believe the Bible at all because you don't believe there has ever been a Bible that has ever existed that would meet any of these aforementioned requirements for any language, time, peoples, or circumstances. And so, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, individuals, I leave you with this, desiring your spiritual prosperity and spiritual success, that you may lay hold on true riches, not those that be physical. Seek ye out the book of the Lord and read. No one of these shall fail. None shall want her mate. Seek ye out the book of the Lord and read, for my mouth hath it, it hath commanded and his spirit it hath gathered them. Have you sought for the book of the Lord? Seriously, friend, if for some reason you came in here and you don't believe this this week, this I am sure of, and I actually do regret it because believe it or not, my wife told me as I was leaving for a trip recently, I was on the phone with somebody, and somebody had called me to debate me about something, and I'm on the phone, I'm getting ready to leave for a trip. And I'm pulling out. And I believe I was going to Malawi. And I'm pulling out to go to Detroit Metro. And my wife, she's in the garage, and she's standing like this, and she's going just like this. While I'm talking, I hang up the phone, and she goes, you know, your biggest secret in life is that you're actually a nice guy. (laughs) Listen, I understand that if you don't believe what I'm saying, I am probably the biggest jerk you've ever met in your life. But listen, friend, that's not my heart. I don't drive down from my house three and a half hours away two weeks before my son is interned until the third week of April because I don't care. I care about you, man. I want your spiritual success. But you're not going to find it if you haven't sought out a book and if you haven't, you're not going to seek out a book if you don't even believe it actually exists. Colossians 3 says that the things that are in heaven can be sought down here on earth. The people of God, the person of God, the praise of God, the purpose of God. You know what else? is in heaven 
that you can seek down here on earth? And he had in his hand a little book. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that, they, that therein are and the sea and the things which therein are that there should be time no longer but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he shall begin to sound the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets and the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said go and take the little book which is open in thine hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth and I went unto the angel and I said unto him give me the little book and he said unto me take it and eat it up and it shall make thy belly bitter but it was it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, it was bitter in my belly. Now I'm going to ask you this question, and I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to shut up once and for all. Do you believe that the Word of God exists in a little book in heaven? And if it does, do you believe you can find that little book down here if you cry to the heavens, give me the book? Do you believe that you can eat that book? And do you believe that if you did, that it would taste sweeter than honey, even the honeycomb, more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, that there are words in that little book that are perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and righteous altogether. Words You need to keep, for such is your sacred trust, and for in so doing there is great reward. If you don't believe that, friend, can I ask you this? Who told you it wasn't true? Do you think it was God? Do you really? 